All right, so we're going to take a look at uh, 1 Peter this morning, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. And so let me read verses 1 through 3, then we'll come back and just do a little introduction and then uh, take a look at uh, uh, breaking it down into three points this morning, uh, three different things that we see uh, that are directly connected to the command uh, to love one another from the heart or sincerely. First uh, Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And so as we begin uh, chapter 2, we see that there is another call to action. There's another command that Peter is issuing uh, to his brethren. And uh, we saw some of those in chapter 1. What we find here in chapter 2 uh, is a continuation of chapter 1, obviously. But uh, there is a direct connection, most uh, commentators see, to verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And so as we continue that train of thought this morning, we're going to see uh, some things that are necessary in order to love one another from the heart. Uh, and so what we will see this morning as we break down these three verses uh, is, first of all, in verse 1, we'll see that we are to put aside all that hinders love. And so that anything, and Peter gives us a list of a number of sins here, a number of uh, sinful attitudes or actions, uh, that we put those aside. Uh, and when we put those aside, that will help us to love one another from the heart. And then we see in verse 2 that we need to long for the food that nourishes love. And so if we want to be the kind of Christian who loves one another, we first love God, then we love others, uh, we need to make sure that we remain nourished, that we have the, uh, the proper nutrients to do so. And then when we look at verse 3, we'll see that we are to remember the experience that motivates our love. Uh, and that is the fact that we have received the love or the kindness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that's the way we'll break down these three verses this morning. Uh, put aside all that hinders love, long for the food that nourishes love, and remember the experience that motivates love. So as we look at verse 1, we see here that Peter again is calling upon his brethren. Let's go back and review verses 22 through 25. Uh, in chapter 1 and see what Peter uh, has just said to his brethren and how it builds up to chapter 2 where he calls them to action based on what they have just heard. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And so as we look at that passage and specifically look back to the command in verse 22 that we are to love one another fervently or to love one another from the heart, we see here that, that in order to do that, there are certain things that we need to remove from our lives. We need to, to take these things off. We need to lay them aside, put them aside. Uh, and so this really is a, a moral decision to, to recognize those sinful thoughts, those sinful actions within us, and to say, I cannot do that. I cannot think that way. I cannot act that way. This is not the way a believer thinks. This is not the way a child of God thinks. That, that if I continue to practice such things, I cannot love my brethren as I should. 
I cannot love one another uh, from the heart. And so we have to make that conscious decision. And that's why Peter says in verse 2, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so he gives a little list there. He says, you need to put these things aside. Lay these things aside. Take these things off. Uh, and, and so as we look at this, this command to, to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have in Christ, to live like a person who has been born again through Jesus Christ, we need to understand that there are things that we are to put off and put on. And, and that concept actually is something that we find in biblical counseling. If you've gone to any conferences, you've read any biblical counseling books, uh, visited any websites, you'll find that uh, often that phrase, put on, put off, uh, that is mentioned many times in biblical counseling. And the idea is, is that whatever is sinful, whatever is ungodly, whatever is not uh, in line with God's will and his word, you put those things off. You remove them from yourself, whether they are thoughts or whether they are actions, desires, that that is what you strive to do is you take those things off. And uh, in some contexts, it would be the removal of garments and the idea that you're taking off those garments and laying them aside and putting on something else. But uh, we do see here that this putting aside is a concept that we find in other areas of Scripture. Uh, take a look at Romans chapter 13, and then we'll look at Ephesians 4.22. Romans chapter 13 and verse 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so there we see a clear contrast that the deeds of darkness are to be removed. We take those things off. We lay them aside. And what do we do? We fortify ourselves. We prepare ourselves by putting on the armor of light. So it is putting off and putting on. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 22, we see another example of putting on and putting off. We'll start in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside, you put off the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so again, we find that concept, we find that principle, we find that, that understanding that Christians are to take off, to remove all those things that are going to be counterproductive to Christian living. Those things are going to stunt our Christian growth. They're not going to, to honor God. We're not going to see spiritual maturity in our lives as we should, uh, if we are putting those things off. And going back to the context of First Peter, we certainly are not going to be able to love one another from the heart if we are continuing to dwell upon and in these sins. And so that's why, going back to First Peter chapter 2, that's why Peter says we need to make this decisive break. We need to have our minds focused and convinced. We need to be resolved that we are going to put these things off because they are counterproductive to loving one another from the heart. Now, we're going to see in a little bit that this, this putting off it is connected to uh, verse uh, 2 in that we are to long for the pure milk of the word or to crave it. And so we see the contrast. So you're going to put off these things, and what are you going to put on? You're going to put on that craving, that longing for the word of God. 
And so we're going to see that uh, in just a little bit. But before we go there, let's take a look at some of these things that Peter says uh, have no place in the life of a Christian. That if these are true of you, you're not going to be able to love your brethren as you should. And so he gives a list here. Uh, this list is uh, malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so as he is uh, giving this uh, short list, but a very powerful list, I mean, you look at these, these five things that we are to put off, and uh, if, if these were true of any person, of any one person, uh, certainly that wouldn't be someone you would want to be around, and they would definitely not be a benefit to the body of Christ. But if these things are absent in the lives of Christians, if you find uh, little or no uh, example of this or presence of this in the body of Christ, they're going to be a stronger body of Christ. They're going to be a stronger uh, group of Christians. And so uh, this isn't an exhaustive list of what we are to put off. But uh, here, these, uh, these things that Peter says you need to put aside or lay aside, uh, you could see how they definitely would connect to loving one another. You can't love one another if you're full of malice and deceit and you're a hypocrite and you envy others and you slander others. And, and so it's perhaps Peter mentioned these things uh, without giving us more uh, things to put off because those directly connect to the loving of one another. And not that other sins don't, uh, but here you can see the, the uh, clear connection that if these things are true of an individual, they're not going to be able to love from the heart. So let's just take a look uh, uh, quickly at what these words mean. I think most of us understand what they are uh, in general. Uh, and so malice would describe wickedness or evil in general. Uh, some see it as moral evil in all its forms. Okay, now some commentators see this, this first term, uh, malice, as kind of an umbrella term that encompasses everything else that follows. And so that would be like sin or evil in general, that malice is evil. Some see it a little more specific, but either way, we are told to put off this malice, to lay it aside. Uh, Lenski in his commentary says that this malice covers all the sins against the second table of the law. And so if you think about the Ten Commandments and you think about the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, then we can see there that the Ten Commandments, the, the two tablets that Moses received, you can divide them into two categories. Uh, commandments number one through four have to do with man's relationship with God. Commandments five through six are, are the commandments that uh, concern relationships between one another. You know, that we are to not lie and murder and, and uh, uh, commit adultery in all of these, these, um, in these six commandments. And so that's the, the idea there, that uh, this malice kind of covers all of those. Kind of the way that many see pride as the overarching sin, that, that pride uh, is the umbrella sin, if you will, that covers everything. And some would see holiness as kind of the umbrella, the overarching attribute of God, that everything he is, is holy. And so kind of the same concept there. Uh, but either way, Peter says, you need to lay aside this evil. You need to put aside this evil, whether it's a specific or a general reference, or an umbrella reference, he says, you, you need to, to lay aside this evil, this wickedness. Uh, deceit, in some translations, you might have guile. Okay? And so here we see this deceit needs to be put aside as well. And so those who practice deceit, those who practice guile, uh, this is defined as craftiness, as cunning, and deceiving others for selfish motives. And so here this is a person who is very dishonest. They have ulterior motives. Uh, they want to get uh, gain for themselves and not see that for another. 
Uh, obviously, that would be tied in very closely to envy as well. Uh, A.T. Robertson says that, that this act of guile or deceit uh, is, is uh, similar to catching with bait, or kind of setting a trap and, and luring people in to, to catch them with bait. And so we certainly don't want to see that kind of attitude, that kind of action in the lives of uh, Christians. And we obviously start with ourselves. We examine ourselves, uh, look at the log in our own eye before we try to get the speck out of others. So we always start with the self-examination. But we see that. We see malice. We see deceit. And then we see hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not something uh, that we have not seen before. We've talked about hypocrisy uh, in the Gospel of Luke as we were looking at the beginning of chapter 12 uh, several weeks ago. We also see it here in 1 Peter. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, you know, we, we see this sincere love of the brethren, this fervent love uh, of the brethren. It, it is a love that is unhypocritical, and, and that's the term he uses there. Uh, the hypocrisis, and so as we look at that, the idea uh, of being a hypocrite is connected to the Greek theater. Uh, if you remember uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, I had explained that, that uh, in the Greek theater you would have the stage actors and they would have a number of masks that they would put on. So they would go on stage and then backstage and as they're changing masks, they would change characters. And so the idea there is that as a Christian, if you are a hypocrite, you are practicing hypocrisy, you are putting on a mask, you are living behind a mask. You are presenting something that is not true of who you really are, it's not your true self. It could be in your actions, it's often in your attitude, it's often in your words when we see hypocrisy in a person's life where they might uh, seem very kind and loving and friendly on a Sunday, but then on Monday they're gossiping about someone or they're, they're saying something that would contradict what they did the day before. And so that's the idea of being a hypocrite uh, in this context. And so uh, Peter says there's no room for hypocrisy. Lay aside malice, lay aside deceit, lay aside hypocrisy. Being that two-faced person hiding behind a mask, that is not how you love one another from the heart. And then we see envy. Okay? Envy is this sin that stems from a jealous attitude. I'm sure that we all have uh, experienced envy to some degree. Either we have been envious of someone else or maybe we've seen uh, someone envious of something we have or that uh, we've accomplished. But this is a very a jealous attitude. And this attitude does not desire the best for others. It desires the best for self, even at the expense of others. You want what someone else has. You think that you deserve that. They do not. Or if they do, you should have it as well. It's a very sinful feeling of this advancement of self. And so uh, Peter says that is uh, something you need to lay aside. William Kelly in his commentary uh, in 1 Peter says, envy is the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. And so rather than rejoicing with someone, you know, we, we, we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Rather than rejoicing with others because something good has happened to them, they've been blessed by the Lord, or whether it's health or whether it's finances or a, a relationship or the purchase of a home or whatever it might be, rather than being happy for them and sharing in their joy, instead that brings us anger, it brings resentment, it brings jealousy. And so we don't want to fall into that trap, that pit, of envy. We, we want to, again, uh, be happy for those who are in situations of joy and, and not uh, envy them and desire what they have 
um, because we are so jealous and we think that we deserve that uh, more than they do, and we don't want to see them prosper or be blessed. Uh, the last thing he mentions here is slander. Okay? Uh, slander would be spreading falsehoods about others as well as disparaging others. And so here you're out there saying things that are not true about other people. Uh, Ebert in his commentary says that slander uh, is a vice that deliberately assaults the character of another and usually takes place behind the victim's back. And so here you are talking about someone behind their back. And uh, we do see sins that are very similar uh, to this list uh, also in James, 2 Corinthians, and Ephesians. Uh, and so we don't want to be guilty of slander and, and certainly any of these, slander, envy, hypocrisy, deceit, malice. We need to lay all those aside. Uh, take a look at James. James chapter 3. We'll look at, at uh, another list here. James 3, verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. And so there we see that selfish jealousy, that envy, that wanting to advance oneself and not wanting to see anyone prospering or having any kind of uh, blessing. We want that for ourselves and we become very angry, agitated, bitter when it happens to others. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. <clears throat> we see here that Paul says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, dispute, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, or disturbance. And so here he's saying, I, I, I'm hoping for the best, but this might be the case when I get there. Uh, and so we see, and, and we understand that the, the church in Corinth was known as a very problematic church, the, the puffed-up church or the arrogant church. Uh, and so in Paul's letters, there is rebuke in his letters to the Corinthians. So you see there a list of things that clearly should be put off. They should not be true of the body of Christ. But in this situation, Paul's afraid that that's exactly going to be the case. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, one more example. Ephesians chapter 3, and um, you know this says chapter 3, verse 31, but that's clearly not uh, that. Uh, it should be chapter 4, verse 31, a typo there. Chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So again, we see a very similar list found here in Ephesians as Paul is writing to Timothy at the church of Ephesus. And of course, that letter is read to all the believers there in the Ephesian church. And so you get the point. There are things that should not exist in the life of Christians if we want to see our lives growing in holiness and our love for God and our walk in Christ and our love for one another. Uh, malice and um, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander need to be put off. They need to be laid aside. And so that covers the first point, put aside all that hinders love. Let's look at verse 2 and look at the, uh, that we are to long for the food that nourishes love. As uh, some of you know, we are grandparents for the fourth time, and so we have uh, four grand or three granddaughters now and one grandson, 
And uh, praise God that not all of our grandchildren are in Michigan. Now we have one that's not too far from here. One's in Castaic. And so we were up there yesterday, uh, first time that we got to see her. Um, it, it, and then uh, I got to make sure. I'm already, and, and my kids are already saying, you're, you're such an old man. I'm already uh, getting her name mixed up. Her name is um, uh, Leilani. I want to say Liliana, but it's Leilani. Leilani Kate is her name. And uh, she's, of course, every grandfather's going to say that their, their grandchildren are the, are the best, and mine are. But um, she, she already has her dark skin, dark hair, long eyelashes, and deep blue eyes. We're like, man, yeah. And, um, but uh, looking at, at uh, this, and there's a reason why I mentioned that, besides just you know, being a proud grandfather, uh, like newborn babies, Peter says, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And so as we were uh, getting the text messages uh, when she was born and, and looking, waiting for pictures and then over there uh, holding her and feeding her last night, she's a voracious little eater. I mean, she just takes that down and, and uh, you could see her. She's, once she has it, she's so satisfied. Just, you know, you see her, she's all kind of swaddled up and you just give her the, the bottle and then whoosh, that's it. But until she has that, it's like, ah. You know, not, not very uh, loud yet. At least we didn't hear her cry once while we were there. But uh, you could tell she was kind of like, oh, I, need, I need my nourishment, kind of moving around. And then Robert, you know, got everything, made sure everything was just right. It's great to see him as a first-time dad, you know, getting the bottles ready and all that. And then we're giving her these tiny little bottles, and she's drinking that. And, um, but, uh, so we had an example of that. I mean, and that, that's her diet. I mean, that is her staple diet right now. It is milk. She's not eating solid food. She's not eating, no, no, we had some really good Chinese food. That's not what she had last night. Uh, she is having the pure milk that she needs, the nourishment that's going to uh, sustain her and cause her to grow. And so Peter uses that example, uh, that, that the way babies long for the pure milk that nourishes them, that sustains them, that gives them life, that Christians need to long for a... a, a um, a similar source of nourishment. Obviously, he's not talking about physical milk. Uh, in New American Standard, the translation says the pure milk of the word, okay, the word of God. And so as we look at this comparison, you might think, well, why is Peter uh, choosing newborn babies as a comparison? Well, it's possible that, that Peter uh, is using that because, remember, Peter has already told his brethren that they have been born again. When you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That is new birth. That means that we are like newborn babes in Christ. Not that uh, Peter's not saying that his brethren are, are spiritually immature, that they have some kind of biblical illiteracy and they need to go back to the basics. What he's saying is, is that the way that children long for milk, the way that infants desire it, they crave it, they need it, they will not be satisfied without it, that is the way that you, as a newborn person in Christ, someone who has been made new by the seed of God, if you look at chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. And so we know that the seed produces new life whether it is the seed that goes in the ground and produces a crop, 
or it's the seed of humans that produces a child, the understanding is that the seed produces new birth, that we are those who have been born again in Christ Jesus. And so it's, it's very possible that Peter's continuing that theme, that understanding of being born again by pointing to those who are newly born. And, and the way that they're newly born, we see that they have this, this inherent desire, this need for milk, and nothing else will satisfy. It is the perfect source of nourishment for them, and they know that, and they want that. They crave it, and nothing else will satisfy. And so that's what Peter is saying. Now, again, I don't think Peter is saying that his brethren here are, are kind of at a, um, a foundational level of their faith where they don't have a solid understanding of Scripture. If that were the case, then Peter would be saying that about all of the brethren who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And that's kind of hard to believe that they would all be at that level of immaturity. And so it seems more logical that what Peter is saying is that you need that craving, not that you don't have the spiritual understanding that you should. Now, if you look at some passages that talk about, uh, and in these contexts, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in Hebrews chapter 5, we see here that there clearly is an understanding that these believers are not where they should be in their understanding and application of Scripture. That is not the case with Peter's brethren. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for if you or for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. And so here, as Paul is writing to, again, this puffed-up church, this church that has a serious problem with arrogance, Paul is saying, look, you should be eating something more substantial, and you're not there. You should be, but you're not. So I have to give you milk. I have to go back to the basics with you. This is where you should be, but this is where you are, and that's not a positive. That's not good for you. You're still fleshy, meaning you're still, you're still living like unbelievers, in a sense. You're not spiritual, you're fleshy. So here it clearly is a rebuke. The context uh, clearly points to the fact that these people in Corinth are not where they should be in their understanding or application of God's word. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and, and verse 12. Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have not come to need milk, or you have come to need milk and not solid food. And so he says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is still an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So he says, Those who, who are, are chewing on the meat are those who understand it and apply it, but that's not you. You're still a spiritual infant. You're not doing what God's word says. You're not a hearer and a doer. So you, you are in that milk stage. So when you look here in the context of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians, it's very clear that these believers are not where they should be. But there's no indication of that whatsoever when you read 1 Peter. Peter is presenting all the blessings that his brethren have in Christ. He is saying you do love one another and you need to continue loving one another and you have received the gospel, there, there's nothing here that's a negative in, in chapter one at all leading up to this. And so here, it's to be understood more of just a comparison. 
that the way babies crave milk is the way Christians should crave Scripture. And the way that the milk causes the infant to grow, it nourishes them, it's going to cause the Christian to grow. And specifically in relation to loving one another from the heart. Now again, babies, they, they don't, uh, as we move on to the second paragraph, not only desire milk, but they demand milk. Uh, I'm sure that in a very short amount of time, uh, our granddaughter is going to be howling like a banshee if she doesn't get her food when she wants it. And that's pretty much true of all children. Now, uh, Robert and Kimberly do have another child. Uh, this one is a feline child. And it was interesting because last night their cat, um, their cat was going crazy because he didn't have his food. It was 6.15 and Robert says usually, the cat's name is Waffles, he said usually Waffles eats at 6. And so, he, I mean, he was just, he was, he was pacing around the front room and he, he just looked so agitated. He, he looked anxious. He was walking around frantically up and down his cat house looking in his empty bowl because the food wasn't there. I mean, he was just, and, and as soon as Robert took the bag out of the closet, a bag of cat food, you could see the cat was just like running. He'd go up the thing and down and run a lap and come up and down and run a lap. I mean, he was just like, I got to have that. And so he's demanding it. He's like, you know, crying for it and looking in his bowl. And, and, and that's the idea here is babies have that desire for the milk. Wayne Grudem says in his commentary, for an infant, milk is not a fringe benefit. Okay? It's not something that's a take it or leave it or it just comes on the side like a side dish. No, no, it's the main course. And, and so again, as Peter is speaking of this pure milk of the word, this is something believers need to have. Now, there is a connection from, verse, uh, from chapter uh, 2 verse 2 to chapter 2 verse 1 and we see here it's a connection of contrast okay in chapter 2 verse 1 deceit or guile uh, the word there is dolon okay? dolon meaning deceit uh, but here in verse 2 when you look at this pure milk it's adolon so the same word with the a in front of it which is known as the alpha privative and what that does is that negates it so that means it is without guile. It is without deceit. And so a little bit here of a play on words. Peter says, you need to lay aside the dolon, but you need to crave the adolon. You need to crave the milk. Lay aside the deceit, but crave the purity of God's word. You need to crave that pure message from Scripture. And so you need to have that. It's not the physical milk. It is the spiritual milk. And and so we, we need to, to have that. Now, uh, in some translations, you, you, you may have milk, uh, or you may have uh, pure milk of the word. You might have something different. Does anyone have something different other than pure milk of the word in their translation? Because when you, when you look here, you do? What do you have there? Pure spiritual milk, okay. Pure spiritual milk, not the pure milk of the word. And, and the reason for that, it comes from a, a, a secular understanding of the word uh, logicon. And so the word for word in the Greek is logos, and we find that in chapter 1, verse 23, the enduring word of God, the logos of God. And then here in chapter 2, uh, we find the logicon. Now this logicon, you find it one other time in the New Testament, and that is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And as Enrique mentioned in ESV, it has the, the spiritual milk. Uh, and so take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, 
Romans 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the same term there, logicon, you find in Romans 12, 1, and in many translations, it is spiritual. Uh, and then you find the same word in 1 Peter. That's why some translators and commentators uh, would translate this the pure spiritual milk and, and wouldn't add the word in there. Now, it does seem, though, that maybe, again, Peter is kind of using a, uh, um, a play on words here. You have logos in 23, and uh, chapter 1, verse 23, and logicon in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, and they both come from the same root word. And so there you see uh, that uh, in the context, though, as what Peter is uh, speaking of, uh, especially when you go back to chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, he's already talked about the word of God and the word of the Lord. Uh, and so word of God in 23 would be the logos, and in verse 25, the rhema of the Lord. And the uh, last time we were together, we said the differences there would be that the logos is more of a general term for scripture. The rhema in verse 25 is more of a statement, a proclamation, and we see this as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those are the differences. But since Peter has already mentioned the word of God in verse 23, that they've been born again through the seed, the, the imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God, it makes sense that in the context, as he continues with therefore in chapter two, verse one, that this pure milk or this pure spiritual milk, it is accurately understood as meaning the word. It is the spiritual source of nourishment. It's not the physical. And the, the source of spiritual nourishment that believers have is the word of God. And so it is um, very safe and logical to come to the conclusion that Peter is talking about the pure milk of the word or the pure spiritual milk, which is God's word. Uh, and so, again, just as we kind of wrap up this section, uh, we understand it's, it's, a, it's a logical conclusion, and we see proven results that babies who are properly nourished, they grow. You know, when you take the, the infant to the doctor for their checkup, well, they, they, they measure them. They want to see how long they are and how tall. They want to see how much they weigh. And if they're not gaining weight, then that's going to be a concern to the doctor. Uh, they're going to say, well, how, how, are, they, how are they feeding? Are, are they eating enough? You know, how many ounces? And then as they get older, what kind of food are they eating? Are they getting a, a well-balanced diet? You know, the, food, the main food groups. And, and uh, so when you look at that, uh, looking at the physical growth uh, is an indication of what's going on, what they're ingesting. Uh, and so the same thing here with believers. Uh, there is that proven result. It's logical, and we do see evidence of people who are feasting on God's word who then are growing in their walk in Christ. You find a person who professes to be a Christian who is struggling in their thought life and in their deeds and, and in their love for God, and you're often going to find someone who is not in prayer, who is not studying the word of God, who forsakes fellowship, and, and then they wonder why they're struggling. Well, you're not praying. You're not studying God's word. You're not around God's people. What do you expect? If those things were physical food, you're not eating. You're malnourished. You're not feeding yourself. And, and so we see here that uh, as we, we grow in Christ, if we want to live holy lives, um, as we read about in, in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, that we are to be obedient children, that we are to be holy like the one who called us. Uh, if we want to live uh, lives that are glorifying to him, we're conducting ourselves in fear on the time uh, of our stay on earth in verse 17. 
If we are to love one another sincerely from the heart, then we need to put aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And in place of those things, we need to crave the spiritual milk of the word. And, and it's not something that is, is uh, optional. It's not the side dish. It's the main dish. It's the main course. And so we need to be feasting on that word the same way a newborn baby is not satisfied unless they are feasting on the milk that they need. Let's take a look at verse 3 as we kind of wrap things up here. Uh, so we've already seen uh, that uh, we want to grow uh, in our, our love for one another. We need to put aside all that hinders love. And we need to long for the food that nourishes love. And we need to remember the experience here in verse 3 that motivates love. And Peter says this, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... So, so you're going to grow in respect to salvation. That's your sanctification and specifically in loving one another from the heart, studying the word of God, feasting on it. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, again, as we have seen before, Peter is using here what is known as a first class conditional clause. We would read this and say, if you have tasted and we would think, well, maybe some have tasted, maybe some have not tasted the kindness of the Lord. In the way that it's structured in Greek, it's better understood uh, since you have tasted or because you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It is something that is understood uh, by Peter and his brethren. You have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So because you have, then you are to long for the pure milk of the word. You are to, uh, to crave that spiritual milk. Now, it's not wrong for us to examine ourselves at times and kind of remind ourselves, okay, if I say that I'm a Christian, then I should act in this manner. If I am saved, then this is the way I should live. And so there's nothing wrong with that examination. We're not saying that we need to, to put ourselves in situations of self-doubt. Uh, we don't want to cause unnecessary doubt in the life of a Christian. And when we understand God's word, there should be no doubt when it comes to our salvation, the fact that we're justified before God because we understand what Christ has done. Our, our justification, our standing before God, our position before the Father is perfect. It is perpetually perfect because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so we can say, I know beyond a doubt that I am saved, but I'm not always walking in that manner. I'm not always thinking that way. I'm not always acting that way. And so if I am saved, as I say I am, then I should live in this fashion. If I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, then I should be doing this. But here, Peter is not bringing any doubt to uh, the fact that his brethren have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It is understood. You have tasted his kindness. You can just go back to, uh, again, verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. They were chosen by God. Chapter 1, verse 3, they are born again to a living hope. Chapter 1, verse 12, they've received the gospel. And remember, this is the gospel that the Old Testament prophets were, were, were looking for and proclaiming the salvation and the coming Messiah. And, and they were doing all of that, we see ultimately for the benefit of those in the future, for a subsequent generation. He says, you've received that gospel. That gospel was preached to you. So they had received the gospel proclamation. They were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, chapter 1, verse 19. There is no doubt here that Peter's brethren had tasted the kindness of the Lord. So Peter is not questioning that, and he's not putting those seeds of doubt in the minds of his brethren. What he says is, since you have tasted 
the kindness of the Lord. Because you've tasted the kindness of Jesus Christ, then you should be thinking this way. You should be putting these things off, laying them aside, and craving the pure spiritual milk. That will strengthen you. That will nourish you. That will cause you to live in a way that is uh, walking in holiness as the one who called you is holy. Now, again, another play on words here. Uh, We've seen this already a couple of times in these few verses, but as he's talking about the kindness of the Lord, uh, it's interesting. He's he's talked about Jesus Christ already uh, in verse 19, and we see here that he refers to him as the Christ, and that's Christos, the Messiah. And here, kindness or goodness is Christos. It's just a one-letter difference. Uh, in English, it would be the I instead of the E or the E instead of the I. And, and so here you see Peter is saying, if you, if you know the, right, if you know the Christos, then you'll know that he is Christos, right? And so when you look here, if you know Christ, you know he's good. Taste and see the Christos is Christos. That's the idea here. And we understand that Peter's brethren have indeed tasted the kindness of the Lord, They are recipients of his goodness. They're recipients of his kindness. And so because of that, that should be a motivating factor. I am chosen by God. I am born again because of God's love and his mercy and grace. I have this inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and reserved in heaven for me. I am protected by the power of God. I have received the gospel. I I am a child of God. I, I am serving a holy God. You know, I am purchased by the spotless unblemished blood of Christ. I have been, been purified in my soul. In verse 22, I, I have been born again through the seed of God's word. You know, I, and so when you look at all this, Peter's brethren can say, I am blessed in so many ways. I've tasted God's goodness, the Lord's goodness, so many times. So many examples, and that's what Peter is saying. Here's your motivation. The way that God poured out his love upon you, and you have received that, you have experienced that, and you've tasted that kindness, well then you lay aside these things that are not conducive for loving one another from the heart, and you crave, you put on, you, you long for the pure milk of God's word. Now it's interesting here, almost every commentator that I've read, I, I can't think of one that I haven't read, and I, I don't have all the commentaries on First Peter, but every commentary I've looked at, they all say that Peter is quoting Psalm 34. That's what he has in mind, Psalm 34, verse 8. Now, if that psalm sounds familiar, it should, because Pastor Scott taught on Psalm 34 not very long ago and preached through 1 Samuel 21. And so Psalm 34, take a look there as we wrap things up. Now, I am not going to give you a very detailed treatment of Psalm 34. For that, you can go to Pastor Scott or look at your notes. You've all had, you've been given very detailed notes on Psalm 34. But when you look at Psalm 34, you see here, it says, A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Bimelech, who drove him away and he departed. And so as we remember here that as, as David is feigning madness, in, in 1 Samuel 21, we find that David is fleeing. He's running from King Saul. And David goes to Gath. He goes to a Philistine city, and and that is the the hometown of Goliath, the giant that was slain by David. Obviously, God is the one who gave him victory, but David uh, hits him with the stone and then cuts off his head, and, and David has the sword of Goliath. 
And David goes there, and people recognize him, and they start singing his praises. So David starts acting like a madman. He's drooling in his own beard, and he's acting crazy. And so the king says, Do I don't need another crazy man in my kingdom. And so David leaves. And David flees uh, from Gath, and he goes to the cave of Adullam. And so David was a man, and we read about this in Psalm 34 and in Psalm, or 1 Samuel 21. And he was a man who was a sojourner. He was on the run. He wasn't in his hometown. He was going around trying to find a place for safety, at times living in caves, having the king uh, hunting him down, wanting his death. And so David knew what it was to be a sojourner. He knew what it was to be on the run. He knew what it was to live every day with uncertainty and, and for fear of his life, that he could die that day. And so here you have in Psalm 34, but you look at what David says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so as Peter is referencing Psalm 34, verse 8, it's a very appropriate Old Testament passage to, to remind his brethren of, to let them know that yet yeah, you are sojourners. This is not your temporary residence. You belong to the, the, the eternal kingdom. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. You're scattered over Asia Minor in all these cities. Persecution is either happening or it's coming. And, and you do stand and you're opposed by others because of your your faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, take a look, go back to 1 Peter. We're jumping way ahead, but look at 1 Peter chapter 4. And so we can see we're not going to be there soon, but we understand here when you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So he says, Christ suffered and you're going to suffer. And when you do this, you live for the will of God. And the way that you live before as this unbelieving Gentile, this unsaved person, you've had enough time in that life. Don't go back to it. And you look at verse 4. In all this... They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So at the very least, Peter's brethren are already being maligned by the people that they used to hang out with, friends and family, because they don't live the way they used to live. So even if the, the full-blown persecution under Emperor Nero has not started yet, they're still already seeing and feeling the effects of being a believer in Jesus Christ. And so Peter, as he quotes Psalm 34, is basically saying, look, King David, who was a sojourner on the run, people wanted to see him dead, he found his refuge in the Lord. He tasted the kindness of the Lord, and you can as well. You should as well. You've tasted that salvation. You've tasted the goodness of Christ, and, and rest in that, and live for his glory, and suffer well. And we'll see that as we continue through 1 Peter um, that the uh, theme there is really to suffer for the glory of God. So as we wrap this up, all those who take refuge in the Lord will be blessed. King David, Peter's brethren, and all Christians who cling to the Lord and his goodness. One uh, comment or a quote on the bottom from Thomas Schreiner, he says, when the righteous are afflicted and suffering, they can be confident that God will deliver them from all their troubles. 
Peter's suffering readers could take great encouragement from, that should say from, the message of this psalm. And so they're going back to the word of God to bring comfort to the people of God. That's why it's so important that we long for the pure milk of God's word. It is perfect, uh, and it always accomplishes what it sets out to do. All right, we're going to close in a word of prayer and then take a little break before we have our uh, morning service in the main chapel. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity to begin chapter 2. We pray that as we have studied it today that we uh, will understand the truths that are in it. I pray, Lord, that I have been accurate and faithful to the meaning of the text and that we will take these words, Lord, and that we will apply them to our lives this very day. Thank you that we can say we have tasted the kindness, the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that we are motivated, Lord, to live in a manner that's worthy of the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ, that we put aside all these things that will hinder us in, in the race that we are running, and that we will put on those things that will bring glory to you and growth to us, and that we will be a blessing to all those around us. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.